Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good morning, Maranatha. So good to be back with you again, even if it is over YouTube. I hope and pray that you are staying healthy and that your uh, quarantine and your social distancing is going as well as can be expected. And, uh, well, it, it happened, right? After nine months of waiting, Declan Brecht Tonneson was born. He arrived uh, 10 days ago now. Uh, in the early morning on Thursday, April 16th. At birth, he was an even 9 pounds, 21 inches long. Both Liz and Declan are doing very well, and our other two kids have enjoyed, for the most part, being older siblings. Uh, We've been blessed to have family around, especially grandparents, during these first few days as we adjust to the new normal. Declan is an Irish name that means man of prayer. And Breck is my middle name, uh, but it means gap or break, uh, specifically in, in reference to a, a break in a fence or a gap in the fence. Uh, strange, I know, right? But uh, that's my mom and dad's fault. <laughs> but it's our prayer that Declan Breck would be a man of prayer who would stand in the gap. And that biblical reference to standing in the gap is found in Ezekiel 20. I'll let you look that up on your own time. But this morning, I'd like to turn your attention back to the Psalms. We've been studying various Psalms throughout quarantine. The Psalms are the prayer book, the the hymnal of the Bible. And the Psalm I'd like to look at together this morning is Psalm 116. And it's a very personal, almost individualistic Psalm. In the 19 verses of this Psalm, I counted the word I used 19 different times. And there are 16 different times where the psalmist says me or my. But this psalm isn't a self-focused psalm. The psalmist doesn't have an I-centered universe. The psalm is, is not directed inwards. This psalm focuses very much on the Lord God and on his character and his graciousness, his mercy, his tender loving care. 26 different times in this psalm, the psalmist speaks of the Lord and what the Lord has done for him. This psalm is truly a prayer for God's goodness. So I invite you to find a Bible and join with me as I read Psalm 116, reading in Jesus' name. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, 
my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the midst of Jerusalem. O praise the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for the chance to gather together and to study your word and to look at this psalm. Lord, we do pray that you would be with us even now as we gather around your word in our homes. Lord, we pray that you would lead us and guide us through this psalm. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you catch how this psalm can be at the same time very personal and very individual, but also very much focused on the Lord God? And because it's so personal, and because there's a very conversational tone to the psalm, the, the outline in your bulletin is much more a, uh, a conversation with full sentences rather than basic bullet points with appealing alliteration. So I hope you can find that and follow along with me. And listen to what the psalmist tells us first uh, and tells the Lord. In, in verses 1 through 4, he says, In my distress I cried out to the Lord. These verses are are saturated with the language of prayer. The psalmist called out to the Lord, calling out to the name of the Lord in prayer. And in fact, twice in these first four verses, the psalmist tells us very specifically that he called on the Lord. You remember when we used our phones to call people? Not just to message them or, or things like that, but to actually call them? That was before, right, the days of robocall and texting. It seems now that every time the phone rings, it's a a spam call with some computer-generated voice telling you that you've won a cruise somewhere if you'll only just give them your social security number as a placeholder, right? And texting is so simple and convenient. A text message can usually be sent and responded to at your leisure, But calling somebody on the phone and talking with them requires a little more focus and concentration, doesn't it? I can be texting back and forth with you while I'm doing reading, playing a game, working on a project. But I'm not a great multitasker, and at some points in time I struggle with single-tasking as well. So if you and I were to have a conversation on the phone, I would probably have to push pause on, on whatever I was doing and give you my full attention. And in Psalm 116, the psalmist is calling out to the Lord, crying out to him and giving the Lord his full attention. And the psalmist tells us in verse 1 and 2 that as he calls out to the Lord, he has received the promises of prayer. And what were those promises of prayer that he received? The primary promise of prayer is that when we call out to the Lord in prayer, he hears us. All throughout the Bible, the Lord promises that when we call to him, he does in fact hear us. 
The Lord put it this way in Jeremiah 33, 3. He said, Call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. So when we pray to the Lord, we can be sure that he hears our prayers. We never have to hope he hears. We never have to worry that he's too busy or too preoccupied with something else. Do you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the 400 prophets of Baal? They're having that famous showdown to determine who is God, which God is the true God. So they get their, all, their altars all set up. They slaughter the oxen and right, whichever God responds with fire is the true God. And the prophets of Baal are crying out to their idol from morning until noon and, and nothing, nothing at all is happening. And then Elijah begins to taunt them. He says, shout louder. Tr- uh, truly, God, or Baal is a God. Perhaps, right, he's deep in thought or, or maybe he is uh, relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey or he's fallen asleep and has to be awakened. I love the, the snarkiness there in Elijah's comments. He, he's just in the bathroom, right? Shout louder. You'll, you'll get his attention. But in all of his snarkiness, Elijah is making a point. Baal can't hear because Baal doesn't exist. And we know that when we call out to the Lord, he is there and he hears us. He hears us no matter the situation. He hears us no matter the dilemma. He hears us and he answers us. And sometimes his answer is yes, and other times it's no, and quite often his answer is wait. But we know that when we cry out to him, he hears us. That's his promise to us in prayer. Did you catch the reason why the psalmist was crying out to the Lord? Look at verse 3 again. The The psalmist is crying out because of his severe sickness. He says, The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. We don't exactly know what disease or, or ailment or injury was afflicting the psalmist, but we do know that it was severe enough that he thought death was imminent. For him, this was it. He described it as the snares, the traps of death encompassing him, circling him all around, the pangs of Sheol or the grave laying hold of him. This was it. He was being captured by death for whatever reason and there was no going back. Maybe the psalmist had been to all the doctors, sought all the treatments, taken all the remedies, but for him, nothing worked. Still, he got worse and worse and so he does the thing that he, the one thing that he to do. He calls to the Lord. In verse 4, he says, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And the Lord answered him. The Lord answered the psalmist graciously. That's the next part of this conversation. Look especially at verses 5, 6, and 7. There we discover that the Lord is gracious to answer the psalmist, and the Lord's gracious answer to the psalmist is anchored in the Lord's goodness. Again, look at verses 5, 6, and 7. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. God's goodness is recounted to us using 
three powerful descriptions that describe God's unchanging character and nature. God's goodness is anchored first in his graciousness. God is gracious, giving us more blessings than we can even ask of or think, even though we don't deserve any of it. God's goodness is also anchored in his unchanging righteousness. Did you catch that description of the Lord there? Gracious is the Lord and righteous, the psalmist says. That means that he is just and fair and right. He is upright and honest in all his dealings. In short, God is good. And the psalmist also says that God's goodness is anchored in his mercy. Our God is merciful. If grace, God's outpouring of blessings we don't deserve, if grace is one side of a coin, then mercy is the flip side. Mercy is not giving some punishment to someone who deserves it. In confirmation class, I've often explained mercy by using the example of someone who is speeding. Uh, Let's say you're late for an appointment or for work uh, or just you're simply not paying attention and all of a sudden you're doing 65 in a school zone. Some would probably call that unsafe, even reckless, right? Uh, But then you're pulled over by a police officer and and the officer irately reads you the riot act describing all that can happen and should happen to somebody who's driven so recklessly. You'd get a huge fine. You'd be forced maybe to forfeit your license. You'd probably, your license would probably be suspended. You might even have to spend a night in jail for as crazy as you've driven. But instead of, of arresting you and putting you in the back of his squad car, the officer lets you go without even giving you a warning. You deserved punishment, but you didn't receive any. That's mercy. And now my example obviously has a few holes in it, doesn't it? It breaks down on a few levels. But it's great for confirmation class because it usually gets my confirmation students telling stories on their speeding parents. But if, uh, if that example were to occur, you could bet that the officer would get in trouble for not upholding the law, right? And rightly so. A police officer's job is to uphold the law. Any officer who doesn't do his sworn duty to serve and to protect us is guilty of sinning in and against his vocation, his calling. And we would do wrong if we were to approach God and his mercy as his simply letting us off the hook or turning a blind eye to our sin. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is gracious. But he is also righteous. He is also holy and just. And his righteousness and his holiness and his justice demand that he must punish sin. And if sin isn't punished, God isn't righteous and holy and just. But God did punish sin. He punished sin by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. The one who knew no sin took your sin upon the cross that Good Friday. And as Jesus died, the wrath of God against sin, all of God's holiness and justice was satisfied. God hadn't turned a blind eye to your sin, but his son stood in your place, taking the punishment that you deserved to die in place and on your behalf. And because Jesus died for your sins and rose victorious over death and lives and reigns forevermore, 
Therefore, God can freely extend to you his goodness, all of his goodness, all of his grace, all of his mercy. So let's get back to the psalm. As the Lord graciously answers the psalmist's cry for help, the Lord gave him a bright prospect. Look again at verses 8 and 9. There the psalmist says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The psalmist had a bright prospect because the Lord had brought healing to him. Whatever ailment, whatever injury, or whatever disease he had, the Lord had healed it. And we're not told how this healing occurred, whether it was miraculously as, you know, he woke up one morning and it was gone, or whether through the skill of of doctors and, and medicines and remedies. But it happened. The healing happened. And the psalmist rightly credited the Lord for being the one to deliver and to heal him. And his prospect was bright because this was a healing for the here and the now. In verse 9, he says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Here, now, on this side of eternity, I will be healed. The psalmist didn't hold uh, to a name and claim it theology. He simply trusted the promises of the Lord. And the psalmist admits that even as the Lord graciously answered him, he had a moment of solemn retrospect. Earlier, the Lord had given him, right, this bright prospect, but now he has a moment of solemn retrospect. That's what verses 9 and, I'm sorry, 10 and 11 are talking about. He's been healed, and now he's looking back at a time when he had believed that the Lord could do what he promised, and yet it was hard to see the final outcome, the light at the end of the tunnel. I believed, he said, even when I said, I am greatly afflicted. We've all been there, haven't we? Stuck between the hard place of, on the one hand, believing God and his power and his goodness, and then on the other hand, yet not seeing those results that we've been praying for. Or maybe we're at that stage of the game where he's told us to wait, and we're growing impatient. We're like the father of the demon-possessed man who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. At times it can be hard to see. My sister recently moved from the plains of western North Dakota to the forests of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And while the UP is growing tired of all of the trees, primarily because they block the sunsets from view, In western North Dakota, right, you've got nothing to block your view. So those beautiful red, purple, orange sunsets fill up the entire sky. But now, um, and we know it, right, it's it's the same sun that sets in the western North Dakota as in the UP, right? But, But with the upper peninsula, you have all of those trees, those pesky trees that can block the view of the sky. And so if you're lucky, you'll just catch a glimpse of of the purple, the red, the orange between all those treetops. It can be hard to see the sunset. And sometimes life is like that. We're so surrounded by the immediate things that are going on within us or around us, outside of us, that we can't see the goodness of the Lord. And that's where the psalmist was. That was a moment of solemn retrospect that the psalmist that the psalmist admitted to having. I know you can do something, Lord, but I'm having a hard time seeing it. Help my unbelief. 
But thankfully, the Lord had heard and had answered the psalmist's affliction. The Lord did bring deliverance. And the rest of the psalm, verses 12 and following, is a response to the Lord's goodness. How shall I respond to the Lord's goodness? That's the question that he asks in verse 12. Look at that again with me. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits? The psalmist says, as he responds to the Lord's goodness, he, he realizes that there is nothing, nothing at all that he can bring to repay the Lord. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, right? As the old hymn goes, we cannot repay God for his grace and his mercy to us, and, and nor does he expect us to either. The Apostle Paul asks the same question in Romans eleven thirty-five and 36. He asks rhetorically, who has ever given to the Lord that God should repay him? Obviously, no one can give God anything because, as Paul says, from him and through him and to him are all things. Every good gift comes from God. And the Old Testament prophet Micah wrestled with this, with this same question and came to a very similar conclusion. In Micah chapter 6, he said, With what shall I come before the Lord? and bow myself before God on high. He's asking, how shall I respond to the Lord's goodness? And he goes on and he says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn son for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Here, Micah lists off some of the offerings that he could bring to God. He, he starts small, right, a, a year-old calf. Uh, but his offerings get larger from there, culminating in the contemplation uh, of offering his own son. And here's what Micah concludes. He has told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We know that we can't come before the Lord in our own merit, in our own worthiness. We're, we're a fallen, sinful people who, who desperately need a Savior. And as we have received Jesus and his righteousness has been given to us, we live our lives humbly. We do justice. We love kindness. We walk humbly with the Lord our God living our lives in daily repentance and faith in the Son of God who was given for us. That's our right response to the Lord. And therefore, the psalmist continues in response to the Lord, knowing that he can't repay him. The psalmist says that he has to simply receive the Lord's gift. That's, I believe, what verse 13 is talking about. Look at that again with me. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. The cup of salvation probably refers to the old covenant practice of, of pouring out a drink offering to the Lord in the temple. Uh, you would bring lambs and calves as an offering, yes, but you'd also bring a drink offering to the Lord as well and pour that on the ground in the temple. This served to remind them where all good gifts come from, from the Lord. But here in Psalm 116, the psalmist isn't talking about giving God anything. Instead, here he talks about lifting up the cup of salvation or receiving the cup of salvation from the Lord. And there's a profound insight in this, I think. 
the only way that we can begin to repay God from whom all blessings flow is by taking even more from him. Uh, John Newton, who wrote the, uh, the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, wrote a, a lot of hymns, actually. And there was another hymn where he addressed the same thought that the psalmist had. Um, he said this, he said, For mercies countless as the sands which daily I receive from Jesus, my Redeemer's hands, my soul, what canst thou give? Alas, from such a heart as mine, what can I bring him forth? My best is stained and dyed with sin. My all is nothing worth. Yet this acknowledgement I'll make for all he has bestowed. Salvation's sacred cup I'll take and call upon my God. The best return for one like me, so wretched and so poor, is from his gifts to draw a plea and ask him still for more. I cannot serve him as I ought, no works have I to boast, yet I would glory in the thought that I shall owe him most. It's a beautiful hymn, isn't it? A beautiful poem to the Lord. And as Newton ponders God's amazing grace towards him, one who is so wretched, so poor, he acknowledges the truth that there is nothing, nothing that he can do to repay the Lord. So the best thing to do, Newton says, is to take the cup of salvation, to drink it down, and then to ask the Lord for more. So how do we respond to the Lord's goodness? We simply receive it, right? But that's not all. The psalmist goes on in in verses 14 through 19 and says that as we receive God's goodness, we should be telling others of his goodness and his grace and his mercy. That's the emphasis, I believe, in these last five verses or so. We won't take time to reread them now, but in that passage, the psalmist mentions a couple of different times his joy being um, in the presence of all God's people, in the presence of all God's people, he says. There's something special about gathering together, isn't there? Through COVID-19, through the quarantine, through social distancing, we've realized how important being together is, haven't we? We've been created for community. We've been created for fellowship, for togetherness. And so if you've witnessed God's goodness and grace in this life, I'd encourage you, as the psalmist does, don't keep it to yourself. Tell others about it. While we can't currently gather together, we can still be in communication with others, right? Witness, testify, tell others about what God has done and what God is still doing. They need to hear. They need to know. And there's one final thought that we need to wrestle with as we contemplate this psalm. The author of this psalm wrote it after he had recovered from whatever sickness or injury or ailment that he had been dealing with. As he writes this, he's looking at things in the rearview mirror, right? The storm is behind him. This psalm shows things as they should be. The psalmist cries out. God responds to that cry of distress, brings healing to it. And then the psalmist praises the Lord. And so the question that needs to be wrestled with, I think, is this. How do we respond when God's goodness seems to be lacking? What do we do when verse 9 of this psalm isn't a reality? And again, verse 9 says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. 
two truths I would point you to when God's seems to be lacking. First and foremost, we rest on his unchanging character, his unchanging nature. We humans are fickle, aren't we? We have emotions that range all over the spectrum, all in a manner of minutes. We can be happy one second, angry the next, and indifferent just a matter of moments later. My kids seem to bring that out in me. But it's not so with God. His character, his nature are unchanging. The Lord doesn't change. And this, this is a good thing. Why? Because if he has been good in the past, and we would say that, yes, he had definitely in the past, then he will continue to be good in the current struggles of life, and he will continue to be good in the days ahead. And so when God's goodness towards you seems lacking, rest in the fact that he does not change and that he has promised to be good towards you. And as you look for God's goodness, look first and foremost to the cross. Look to Jesus, because it is at the cross of Christ where God's goodness was poured out. The Apostle Paul had to remind Timothy, who was struggling under the weight of a hundred different burdens, to remember Christ Jesus and to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When there doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel, look to Jesus. Look to his suffering and death in your place and on your behalf. There you will find God's mercy and grace and goodness freely given. And then the second truth I'd point you to when the goodness of God seems to be lacking is found in verse 15. In verse 15, we are reminded that, that yes, death is an enemy, but God can use it for his glory and his good. Look at verse 15. It says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We recognize from Scripture that death is an enemy. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls it the last enemy to be destroyed. Death is an enemy because it is the consequence for breaking God's law. Death is the punishment for sin. And every funeral we attend, every death we hear of in the news due to COVID-19, every baby aborted in the womb is a reminder that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Death is an enemy, and an enemy that we will all eventually face unless Christ returns before then. But God can use even death for his good and for his glory. And again, this is demonstrated primarily at the cross, the cross of Christ where Jesus died for your sins. God used the death of his son and his subsequent resurrection to bring about the redemption of the world. God also uses death to usher his saints into eternity. That's where verse 15 comes in to play. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And it's the, the death of his saints, of believers, is precious to the Lord because in death, believers are ushered in to his presence when our body is destroyed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul calls, or likens our bodies to tents. And I love camping and backpacking just as much as the next guy and probably even a little bit more. I am getting a little bit worried 
because COVID-19 is jeopardizing our uh, July backpacking trip to uh, Banff in Canada. Those plans, I might just have to pitch my tent behind my house and, and call that good. <laughs> but camping is great, right? But for a limited time, any, any longer than a week, and you really start longing for the comforts of home. Or maybe for you, it's even just uh, one night, right? Any after, after one night, you're longing for the comforts of home. And these earthly bodies that we have are, are little more than tents, temporary dwelling places until our own death when our spirits depart to be with the Lord and our bodies are laid to rest. But the Bible teaches that death isn't the end even for our earthly bodies. The Lord will even redeem them on the last day when Christ returns and the trumpet sounds, the dead, the decaying tents of our bodies will be raised and recreated, imperishable and immortal. Just as a farmer plants a seed in the ground expecting a harvest in return, so too will our bodies be raised to new life. But a life free from the aches and the pains of daily life, an eternal life where we will fully enjoy God's goodness up close and personal. At the bottom of the bulletin insert and in the video description below is a talk about it section. And I'd encourage you right now to, to pause the video and to discuss these questions with those around you. After you're done, come back here and we'll pray. Sing the closing hymn and receive the benediction. If you don't have the bulletin pulled up or you can't see the description, here are the questions on, on the screen here, and this is what they are. How have you seen God's goodness either in your life or in the life of somebody else? In what ways have you been tempted lately to doubt God's goodness? What do you need to do to remind yourself of God's goodness to you? And so if you haven't already, please pause the video. Discuss these things with those around you and do it now. It's easier to say, well, we can do it later, but then a million distractions happen and you never get around to it. So please, pause the video. Talk about these things with your family. If you just happen to be watching by yourself, these questions still present an opportunity to reflect and to meditate on God's goodness. So again, pause the video now. Thank you for taking time to pause and to talk through some of those things. We're praying that in the midst of COVID-19, God would foster worship and spiritual conversations in your home. Your discussions on the goodness of God are just a small step in that direction. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy Lord, we thank you for sending your son to die for us in our place and on our behalf. And Lord, we pray for those in our congregation who are, are maybe not seeing the goodness of God right now. They're battling cancer or other illnesses. They're mourning the death of a loved one. They're, they're struggling with their isolation and, and quarantine. Lord God, we pray that you would put your arms around them today and let them feel your presence even in the midst of all of their struggles. Lord, let them know your goodness. Let them know your love for them. And again, we thank you for this time that we can be together this time in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.